Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio and podcast show featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom Dioro. Thank you, Charlotte. For our guest today, for our 100th episode, our guest today, we're honored to have 100 episodes. I'm amazed, still amazed by that. Please welcome retired Colonel Pete Newell, CEO of BMNT and Board of Director for Hacking for Defense Incorporated. Hacking for Defense is a 501c3 nonprofit organization established to enable powerful approaches to stimulating science and technology, invention, disruptive innovation, and entrepreneurship on university and college campuses. H4DI solves real problems right now and tackles complex problems critical to national security and invent the new technologies with a team of engineers, scientists, MBAs, and policy experts. For more information, feel free to visit www.hrdi.org. That's hrdi.org. Hello, Pete. It's an honor and pleasure having you on the Modern Architect Show today. Well, thanks so much. I'm super excited to be here for your 100th 100. episode. I, I don't know that I've done anything 100 times that's <laughs> really? worthy of celebration, so, so congrats on Oh, that. you've done much more than that's worthy of celebration. Thank you very much. But thank you very much. I'm so happy that you are the 100th guest on the Modern Architect Show. Thank you so much, Peter. It really uh, means a lot. Can you share with us some early inspirations, if you will, if you kind of think back as far as you can recall, like why you're doing what you're doing now? And when it may have started, as far back as you can recall, even if it's in childhood, if you're at liberty to share with us. So I grew up and went through college without really a clue as what I was going to be or what I was going to do. In fact, I was a really poor college student because I was kind of <laughs> aimless. <laughs> and, and it was literally after I joined the military to, to I actually earn money so that I could go to college that... I discovered that I enjoyed the environment, not because of the discipline of the river, but because there was something new to solve every day. There was a new problem that was thrown in front of you, and you know, I was fortunate that this was an environment where they, they literally let young people you know, go out and handle whatever gets in front of you. That was the expectation. So I became, what I would say, at an early age, addicted to an environment that presented, you know, rapid challenges of all different kinds. 
and what I found is, you know, even though I joined the military and I became an officer and, and I never really intended to stay in the military for a long time. <laughs> 32 years later, oh, I realized. And my I respect, was sir. Really, thank you very much. No, thank you. Um, I got to pay it forward because my oldest son <laughs> is now five years into his career as an army oh. officer. So what I discovered is I'm truly addicted to the problem aspect of things. I am addicted to solving problems and building things and get around that. Addicted to solving problems. Whereas most people, if not um, hope they don't even come their way, they hope they go away. And you're actually like running into the fray. Well, yeah. It's almost like, the, you know, you get the I get a new problem. It's a challenge. And, you know, as soon as it's done, it goes away. It's like this letdown. It's like I'm bored. No way. Oh, really? No. I did, yeah, I'm horrible bored. I, I, I get in trouble when I'm bored. <laughs> I can't go hunting for things to do, and, and you know it's not always appropriate. <laughs> really, you share with it. That's beyond interesting. Is how you you get bored if you're not out actually looking to solve a problem? Yeah, I, I say what it, it is. What yeah. it is. Now, fortunate, yeah. the world is is full of really healthy problems to solve. <laughs> True, um, and, and you know, after I retired, I I discovered there were lots of people like me who individually were highly energized and charged to do things, and I'll say it this way, to do things for purposes greater than themselves. Okay. And they would expend great energy and time. That's what their purpose was. Now, they had to make a living and do whatever else. They had jobs, but they really wanted to do was sink the, the teeth into things. So, yeah. You know, I, I came to Silicon Valley after I retired with this idea of, you know, the government's got a lot of problems. It can't get hold of technology, and Silicon Valley's full of it, full of technology. <laughs> yeah, full of <laughs> that too. <laughs> um, and I found that this place is full of people like that. Wow. So it's full of them, but so how did you, how do you harness all that? Or if you, you find stinking hard <laughs> problems. And, really? It, and for people like that, it's red meat. You throw it in a room and it's like, wow! That's what so enamored me with coming here was the collateral. Okay. It wasn't money here. It's do, do you have the next biggest problem? And do you have the wherewithal and the fortitude and the magnetism to attract people to it? And then can you have the organizational skill to craft and deliver an organization of people and things to, to do that. We actually have a job in BMNT where we call them ecosystem architects. I have people I've specifically hired as ecosystem architects, and their job is to find the people we need that are associated with specific problem sets and energize them into actually working with us to solve it yes. for short periods of time. Share with us how it began. And uh, kind of where you are now, and you're, if, you, if there's, if you don't want to mention companies or organizations names, you don't have to. But I'm just curious: is how did you begin to formalize that whole process to say, you know, what, we're going to move on this now? You know, we, as I said, we started small. We started with you know four guys and a girl on a driveway with with no office and no company. No and way in a driveway. No kidding. I did a classic. We didn't even have a garage. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> we started this company. You didn't have a garage. And, <laughs> and really, we we had a concept, but okay. it was really just one client at a time. You know, today, the company's over 45 people. We've got offices in 
Palo Alto, L.A., San Diego, D.C., Boston, and, and London. We From the driveway. Off, <laughs> you know, we spun off a nonprofit that now yeah. is, you know, running a graduate level college course in 22 universities around the world. There's From the a driveway. Lot of time between that, but but we're classic, <laughs> as you know, my relationship with yeah. Steve Blank and yes. Lean Startup is I was classically adopting Lean methodology in terms of discovery of finding out what's our purpose versus what's needed and then how to communicate something to build. And, you know, that did build. So I would tell you, the, <laughs> the methodology works if you can apply it to your life. Into business contracts and other things. Sure. Now, also, it's it's evolved obviously from from that point before there was even, there wasn't even a garage to where it is now around the world. And share with us a bit how the new Oakland, the local project, is in in the proper. So, so it's interesting when when we taught the first hacking for defense class at Stanford. Okay. Which in hacking for defense is uh, what I need to flip classroom. For a little bit of context, there's no books, no lectures, definitely no answers. Okay. And and this, all we do is we add a problem and we provide a lot of coaching. And we, the instructors, learn alongside the students of first how to validate that the problem they think they're solving is real. And then validate that they can achieve what we call product mission fit, which is can you find something that solves this problem and then can you deliver it? And what's the pathway to do that? That's the class. And we taught the first one in, I think, 2015 at Stanford. Steve Blank and I and Joe Felter. And before we finished that class, we had a number of other universities raise their hand and say, you know, we're, we want to teach this class. Said, Great. We're going to expand, you know, Hacking for Defense. And then less than three months later, somebody in the State Department showed up and said, hey, have you thought about Hacking for Diplomacy? No way. <laughs> so the fall, and we taught hacking for events for the first time in the spring quarter. In the fall quarter of the following year, we hooked up with a guy named uh, Vika Krieger, who was a State Department uh, employee, and, you know, we taught hacking for diplomacy. And then somebody said, hey, can you do sustainment? Can you do energy? Can you do... Before long, we did hacking for all these things. <laughs> um, we finally just did it. We call it H4X, hacking for anything. H4X? H4X. Okay. And it shows up later yeah. uh, as, as we realize that what we have developed is a process by which you can manage um, an innovation pipeline. End to end, how you get innovation to happen is delivering it through a well-constructed pipeline of activities and things that move innovation from one thing to the next. Hacking for local was the, I call it the bigger subset. From my standpoint, there's no problem that exists in the defense and intelligence arena that doesn't exist in our everyday lives. The challenge okay. sometimes is finding them and, okay. you know, finding what the digital twin is. But but there, there really aren't. We know that that cities and states and local governments they have all kinds of problems and they have an, they don't have the budgets the federal government does. But what they have is this really unique. They're local and the problems are all right under your feet. You don't have to try hard to go find them. <laughs> the other thing that, that I, and I call this unsettling to me was is the realization that we stopped teaching civics in the United States years ago because it was too expensive. And the cost to us is we have, you know, great young men and women who are immensely talented growing up with really no sense of what the government does. Hmm, Nor do they have any interaction with it other than what they they see on TV. 
And they're not incented to actually get involved in the problems of their own local community, even though they see them every mm-hmm. day. What we found from the Hacking for Defense class is the students were so enamored with these problems from a national security standpoint that 60% of the students that take this class continue to work with the problem sponsor after the class ends. Some of them have actually... 60? 60%? 60% continue to work on those problems with their government problem sponsor afterward. Nine teams over the course of this thing have launched companies to deliver the solutions to the government. And we started looking and say, you know, if we could come up with the same construct and get local communities to nominate problems and sponsor these classes and get a local university work on it, it'd all be local. We'd get and harness this immense power in the universities and get it focused on fixing things in their own communities. And we fiddled around with it for a long time. And one of the young former Marine who was a law student and a Stanford GSB student came to me one day and said, you know, how do you think this would work in local cities? And we started pulling out all the stuff we talked about, and he was great. He goes, my new job is this with the Schmidt Family Futures Foundation. And I think this would really be a good idea. So with the Eric and Wendy Schmidt Futures Foundation help, we came up with the funding required to actually prototype and launch this thing. And the requirement was we had to have a city and a university that was local willing to partner with us to, to pull this thing off. And Berkeley and Oakland mm-hmm. uh, came together pretty quick and said, you know, we got it. The course launched three weeks ago. Uh, we've got three think, weeks ago. 24 students in that class working six or seven problems for the city of Oakland to include things, you know, the housing problems and, you know, all kinds of issues. So you want the real, the nasty problems. It yeah. looks like you're not it's going after real. Let's try to, okay. I don't want the esoteric stuff. It's like, you want to be able to go down and find the, the person who is at the bottom of the problem pile who is most affected by it. And then you want to find everybody who's going to call the chain of custody for a problem. Everybody else who has some responsible or touches that thing that may be able to influence how that problem presents itself and how a solution might be used. That's the student team's job is to figure that out. And take that pathway they build and hand it back and say, this is the pathway to solving a problem. Or what usually happens is you, you misunderstood your own problem. Say that you misunderstood. You misunderstood your own okay. problem. So, and I will tell you what we've learned from the from the national security for hacking for defense is that no problem survives first contact with the team. The problems are wrong because people don't understand the technology around them. They don't really understand the beneficiaries of a solution, and in many cases, we're pursuing symptoms of problems, but not to actually solving the problem. Or we're pursuing something that's old and technology has already screened past it. Part of the beauty of this process of what comes from this is this innovation pipeline is at the beginning of the pipeline, the first thing you do is curate problems and then validate that the problem you're working on is the correct one. Because none of us have the assets to waste on working on the wrong problems. Sure. So hacking for local now, you know, the same thing happened as soon as we taught it. Uh, <laughs> Same thing happened. I, Here we I go. I think I, my last count was was seven other universities have raised their hand and said, we want to do this. And these are all great universities who are doing some type of social entrepreneurship or something else. But we focus on 
mission-driven entrepreneurship. Let's touch back on that when we return. Mission, say it again. Driven entrepreneurship. Awesome, awesome. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. The Burlingame-based Good Tidings Foundation supports the arts and education, athletics, and dreams from youth in communities of need throughout Northern California. The organization works closely with professional sports franchises and athletes, businesses, and government agencies to increase access to enriching opportunities for deserving youth. This includes going ongoing projects through school districts, recreation departments, and local cities. Tax-deductible donations of any amount are always welcome. For more information, visit goodtidings.org. We're talking today with retired Colonel Pete Newell, CEO of BMNT and Board of Director for Hacking for Defense Incorporated, H4DI. For more information, feel free to visit www.hrdi.org. That's www.hrdi.org. Pete, that mission-driven entrepreneurship, that's a trademark in my opinion. Share with us what that means to you. So I, I think the difference here is mission-driven entrepreneurship starts with a problem, not necessarily with an idea for a new product or something else, but it starts with a deep understanding of a problem that has to be solved and attracts to it a very unique population of, of people who they behave just like a startup does. They're, they're forming a startup idea. And things that fall into that category of mission-driven could be policy problem. It could be something that is simple is, you know, local transportation, that that's simple, but is, is, <laughs> yeah. is something as bland as that, or big, nasty, hard things like how do you handle the future of um, artificial intelligence in certain applications? That big? So Yeah, absolutely. Is that either daunting or exciting if you just think of that? The future of artificial intelligence in any facet, to you, that's like, oh, let's get on this. I, no, it's 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 exciting. It's it's a massively <laughs> big problem, and I, and I <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because because of our you know, let's say our defense work and the work we do with intelligence communities. I, I tell you that when anybody says, "Oh, yeah, we're going to do artificial intelligence, and we're not going to get outrun by the Chinese and other people," and and you look at them and say, "So, what are you going to do?" And the hand waving starts, and lots of dust comes up, and, and at the end of the day, it's like, "All right, stop." What problem are you going to solve first? Uh-huh. Well, we don't know. What, what do you think? Uh-huh. And it comes down to, it, it's something that, that's completely simple as you start realizing this. Can you find today problems that consume our human capital? The kind of things that take people, you wrote, I got to do this over and over and over and over again, and replace that with an algorithm and off-ramp that human capital so that it can focus on things that really do require a human. And then the second question is, can you, how many of those can you find in a short period of time? It's all problem driven. Can you find the right problems that will teach you about the application of the technology, will enhance your ability to build a roadmap to actually getting it established and using it? That's how you architect yeah, that that the architecture for getting through this. Yeah, well, you you describe it so succinctly, but it did it take a long time to arrive there? I beat my head against the wall a lot. <laughs> okay, see, there it is. Really, yeah, because because that was yeah. that was well stated and understandable. Yet I realized 
that, that didn't just come overnight. That's that's a lot of life experience to get to that point. It is a lot of life experience. And I will say our learning is accelerated because of the clients we work with. They have big, yes. massive problems. They are dedicated and energized to solve those problems. They're demanding, and they learn at light speed. Learn at light speed. They do. Another trademark. So <laughs> to say the mission-driven thing, if you are driven by a mission, you don't waste any time, and you have no time for esoteric discussions. It's how fast can I gain experience in this problem in a potential suicide pathway so that I can learn from it as fast as I can, and then how do I apply that learning? I'm doing that with a dozen to two dozen government agencies at one time. I get the benefit of all of that learning and turn it right back to them. This constant feeder system of execute, collect, synthesize, analyze, rebuild, put it back. Yeah. Now, if you go to the back to the Department of Defense, my previous perception is that it moves rather slow and the decision-making process is, um, there's an inertia there. You're helping to expedite that with them or for them or along with them collaboratively? With with them. I don't okay. believe in doing it for people. I, okay. I think it's, it's really important distinction about sure. anytime you talk about mission-driven entrepreneurship, with. you are doing this with okay. people, not to them and not for them. Yes, that the answer is yes, you have to be able to do that. Yeah. You, you have to be able to help organizations that sometimes are very slow and ponderous about what they're doing. But at the same time, you have to understand that those organizations, even the government, they can move fast when they want to. They can. And it's it's simply getting some to the point that they recognize that I'm willing to accept the risk of doing this under certain circumstances and helping them make that decision. How important or not important is fear in that equation? I think... Fear of, well, it, it's, it's both an attractor and a detractor. And, and okay. it's, a, it's a driver. It's the, a driver. The fear of being surprised tactically or strategically down the road drove us to create DARPA in, mm. in the 1950s, drove the creation of Incutel in the 1970s, you know, quite frankly, drove the creation of the Army Draft Equipping Force that I was part of um, in, in the 2000s. So fear is a driver sometimes. At the same time, it is an inhibitor because of the fear of risk. I, I'm afraid to take risk in doing something, and I don't know how to de-risk, or I don't know how to reduce my fear level and gain comfort with that risk. How do you address it? Is there is there a process that you mentally and then actionably, I don't know if that's a word, actionably, but it is now, you take action on uh, reducing that fear? Sure. Uh, okay. So, you know, this is where that innovation pipeline comes in place. Okay. Is, is you realize that there's a series of activities that are interconnected that you can use just like um, a venture capital company does to to establish whether they're going to invest in something because that's what they're, they're trying to reduce their fear level and de-risk their, their investment and put their investments the right thing. So if you're in this constant process, of, it's a 5 a process. You start with how do you source ideas and problems and people and technologies just so you have a constant stream of things to look at and interact with. The second phase of that is how do you curate that crowd and boil down the most important problems and prioritize them and establish what the initial ecosystem of people around them are and then decide which ones you're going to work on first, which is what's last. 
what's a horizon one change, incremental change, so versus a horizon three moonshot? And if you understand that and you can match that against your portfolio, uh, your capital portfolio, then you decide is I can only take one capital uh, horizon three thing at a time because it scares yeah. the hell out of me. Yeah. There's horizon one things I'm pretty comfortable with. But but if you have that map, then you go into this discovery phase where this is where lean comes in so well because it forces you to first validate that you got the correct problem. Now, I'm de-risking because I know – now, tell people this. Uh, yeah. Buying the wrong stuff faster is still a failure. <laughs> Buying the, the wrong, wrong stuff faster, faster is still a failure. Okay. Huh. So if you know you're solving the right problem and you have confidence in it, you're just already starting to de-risk your confidence level because now let's just go find the solution. The methodology that Steve Blank essentially invented with lean methodology gives you a roadmap that forces you through a series of engagements that essentially the process of building a hypothesis and then building an MVP and testing it and getting data back is the scientific method applied to entrepreneurship. That's how you de-risk what you're doing. The next phase is that's okay. I, I've got the right problem. I think I have a potential solution and I have a nascent team ready to solve it. The next step in this process we call incubation. And incubation is how you take a nascent team and a problem and idea and turn it into an investable entity. And you're trying to do three things. One is you're trying to establish a basic understanding of the technology readiness level. The second is you're trying to establish an investment readiness level, which means do I have the right team, the right business process, do I have the IP? Are these these guys and girls really the ones who are going to deliver a solution, or are they going to fall apart halfway down the road? How do you measure that? Do Do you interview them? Is it more intense uh, than a traditional job interview because you understand the magnitude of the problem that they're looking to solve? Yeah, it really, I would say it's much more intense, particularly for them. For them? It, oh, okay. No, well, I mean, it's, it's, it is for us as well because, you mm-hmm. know, the other thing we're looking at is this adoption readiness level. Is Are there entities and things ready to adopt the solution down the pipeline? It's not a yes-no thing as much as... If I'm going to invest time and energy in this team, I want to know what to expect out of the end of this. Am I improving the readiness level of technology? Am I going to get a better team or am I going to get uh, a better pathway to my first customer? The pressure on the team is intense because they have to perform and they have to deliver and they have to keep you know, generating hypothesis and, and this constant test. So it's a very unique individual that becomes even just part of that team in your, your estimate. It's not not a, it, it, regardless of their qualifications or credentials. It, it seems like you're you have to discover a person that's kind of a real diamond in a the classic entrepreneur. So I mean, okay. I think a lot of people misunderstand the word entrepreneur. Yeah. There are lots of folks in Silicon Valley who are makers or inventors or scientists and things like that. They're not necessarily entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs are the people who are willing to cashier the lives of their family and everything else because they're so passionate about something that, by God, they're going to make it happen. Shh, don't say anything. It's not there. That's an entrepreneur. I'm feeling guilty. That's my wife. That's my wife. I I tell you, the stress (laughs) that I developed... I'll, I'll yeah, share like, with it. This I have is a dry awesome. erase board in my office, and on okay. the back side of it, nobody can see. I've got this thing that says the 10 degrees of insanity. All right. And the first degree, the 10th degree of insanity was was actually the Battle of Fallujah, you know, no kidding, urban war. Oh. 
the second degree of insanity was becoming a startup founder. The degree of stress that it cost was very similar. So um, to talk well, about the special yeah. kind of individual, entrepreneurs don't have to be experts in the technology. They're the they're so passionate that fear isn't something. I mean, they deal with it constantly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but they're willing to tramp down that fear and actually make something happen. So there's a level of craziness. Craziness, <laughs> for sure. Sure, you have to admit that, that you're crazy. Yes. You yeah, have absolutely. to admit it. Otherwise, you'll be telling someone else that you're crazy and that person will probably charge you. So I think there's a, a level of uh, a grit. Sure. Is, how how, yeah, how important is grit? That's it's not something like I think you can get your degree in grit, but is it? How important is it to this? It's incredibly important, and I'll start with you know the the basic <clears> of, of when you did, we're in a hacking for defense class and we're watching student teams, and usually the first the second class is when the teams come in and we call it bad cop day because <laughs> they've not done enough interviews, their analysis sucks, and their MVPs are worthless. And we, Stanford students, aren't used to being told they aren't doing a good job. And we emphatically, in, in very uncertain terms, not often entirely politely, tell them that their work is crap. They're not politely. You just, okay. Now, if you're on the receiving end of that, it's a shock because it's very public in a room. One or two things happen. Either they shut, actually three things, they shut down, argue, no, I'm right. Or they say, oh, thank you. Can you give me more? Oh. It's, it's the can you give me That's more true. people that you're looking for because they're opening themselves up to feedback and they realize that the more feedback I get, you know, the hardest feedback to get from people is honest, honest feedback. It is the toughest thing in the business world to get is to stand with somebody. This is my idea. What do I do? You see, really honest feedback sometimes basically says that it hurts. It sucks. Yeah. It's even harder to, to even I have this, suppose I have to stop sometimes and says, listen, I'm not trying to sell something. I don't put a prototype in front of you. I want your feedback. Tell me whether it stinks or not. Give me something else to think about or another idea. So instead of pitching, I'm essentially just giving you enough information to get you to talk to me. That's the part of, of lean that, that really is so powerful. But it's that grit established over. Do you do this enough? It starts to become endemic into the way you engage with people. Yeah, it's, I used to uh, think it was a fearlessness, but I think fear is always there. So it's not like you can get rid of it. It ought to it's become a friend. Fear. It ought to become a friend. Yeah, you over, just overcome it. This is just terrific. This is the modern architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. The Natural Capital Project is hosting a four-day symposium at Paul Brest Hall on the Stanford campus from March 18th through the 21st. The symposium is focused on how information about the value of the environment, Earth's natural capital, can and is affecting decision-making to create a more sustainable planet. Topics will include livable cities, sustainable development planning, resilient coastal communities, secured fresh water, and much more. For more information, visit naturalcapitalproject.stanford.edu. We're talking today with retired Colonel Pete Newell. CEO of BMNT and Board of Director for Hacking for Defense Incorporated. For more information, you can visit www.hrdi.org. That's hrdi.org. Pete, I wanted to share this quote with you, and I think I may have talked to you briefly about this, but uh, I think it's definitely relevant to our, our topics and trends that we're addressing today. Is It's a quote. The real voyage of discovery 
consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes from Marcel Proust. What's your thought on that quote? You know, I, 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 one of the, I call it the book I read a long time. When I first took over the job of the rapid of course, working on uh, skunk works, was that I realized I was providing peripheral vision to the senior leadership of the Army. That's the good new eyes, the new insight, is because of all the things that I was working on and doing, there's over 300 projects at one time, I was collecting problems that people didn't see. And through my process of discovery, I was providing them insight into things that were important or not important. And, you know, part of my job was if it wasn't important to go take care of it and make sure that it doesn't become important suddenly and outsize its relationship with the world. So, But I also realized in my own relationship with the world around me, I needed to create my own peripheral vision and be able to catch things in the shadows that were warning signs that something was changing. So my response to that is, how do you create peripheral vision? Yeah, how do you? I mean, you've, you've explained how you can do it in your experience. How teachable is it? Or do you need that, spe- that, that special individual, that special person or people to be able to carry out that vision? And In my case, this is a unique group of special people. And okay. I want to tell you that the people that, that make up my company are truly special. Please. They, you know, some of them are what I call um, ecosystem architects, which means they can talk to anybody and sort out in five minutes whether they're worth something or not and come back with a detailed understanding of what they do. In five minutes. In five minutes. No, no, 200. I can't. I'm I'm an introvert. Okay. But these people real quickly can say, well, yeah, I've I've talked to, you know, 50 people in a room and here's who they are and here's who's important, who's not. The, The ability to establish relationships with people that allow you to, I call it trusted relationship, and it's not because you're honest or dishonest. Trusted means I understand what it is you do and what motivates you, and you're consistent. And if I have that kind of relationship, I know that what I can do to provide you that will help you do what you do will make you better, happier, whatever, and that when I ask you a question or something else, you're going to give me something in return. You're going to do me a favor, or you're going to warn me that something's coming because we have that relationship. Establishing peripheral vision means that you have to have those, I call those kind of outposts, but you have to know lots of people in different places. There's a sense of diversity that you have to create around lots of different things and and in order to get the kind of information that that you want. And it has to be a free flow of ideas. That free flow of ideas. Is that something also that, um, my opinion, my experience is that that's something that you have to build and develop on a almost a minute by minute basis? It's not something you have and you're good. You got it all the time. No, it requires, and that was going to be constant maintenance. It, it, Con- it, so it is constant okay. because as it, depending on what you're working on, you know, called the heat map. Some of those connections will have to be closer to you, closer to you, depending on whatever crisis you're working on. But at the same time, you don't want the rest of your network to degrade because you're not doing anything valued in and you're not watching or doing. So you minimize, I call it exposure, you minimize your interaction with something so you can focus on other things. But while you're doing that, you need to understand that something may happen out in that minimal network that that is important to you. As, As my company has gotten bigger, I've had to entrust my personal ability to do that 
to people around me and I've actually hired people who everybody who comes in, they, they have their own network. But even when I'm focused on something else, I trust the fact that they're focused on other things and paying attention to what's going on. Now, that sounds like um, the larger you get as an organization and the more problems that you solve and the more people's organizations and uh, entities that seek your, your guidance or they want to create it on your own, that, I would think personally, that means that you have to be, there's no off button for you. No, never. I mean, I, not in this environment. I, I think that particularly for the folks in the company and for me, this is, I call it the last stop, but this is what we do. And the, the work-life stop. barrier really doesn't exist when you're an entrepreneur. That is what makes you happy, despite the fact <laughs> that whatever you're working on driving you crazy, that's what you do. And if you don't have the craziness, you're not happy. <laughs> We're all that way. I, mean, I wish I didn't it, 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 it truly is a sickness. <laughs> it's somebody out of treat. But, but thank no, God. I don't think it's a treat. And uh, uh, Steve, Steve Blanca, if, if you're listening to this, you know, as I, I, I shared with you earlier, Pete, that he's kind Steve, of... Steve, we're not talking about you. <laughs> he's kind of a perpetual four-year-old. But I don't mean that. I don't mean that in a negative. You have to have that sort of curiosity. Do you agree? Or, uh, if you're Steve, wrong, Steve say no. in particular, that constant discover mode. Okay, so there was a curiosity. That, personally, having spent lots and lots of time with him, and I consider Steve, you know, not just a mentor, but a close friend, he is in a constant discovery mode, and if he's not, he's not happy. So that discovery mode, I've actually felt in a, for a long time that creativity is overrated. I felt that discovery is really what we're all about. And I don't have a lot of takers that, uh, um, on that, but it sounds like you do. Why is it, do you think, that discovery may actually be more important than creativity? I don't say that it's more Not important, important but just, right? it, there's a, there is a, uh, I don't have a, the right answer for it, but it, 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 take, your, take a shot at so it. So I'll take a stab. I, I think that when I talk about diversity, um, <clears throat> the diversity of thought and the people around you means you need creationists. I may get in trouble here. You need creative people to keep things fresh and body check the people who want to run straight down a path to architect a solution. Oh, I like that. And, <laughs> and I'm a, yeah. a I'm a classic draw on the railway's board and and lines and squares and do things. And I've got it's a great creationist. He'll come in and say scribble all <laughs> over the place. It's like I don't understand anything you just did, but give me a few minutes to think about it. It's it's those very rich collisions between different um, archetypes of people that are so powerful because that's when you really do get new and, and interesting and innovative ways to approach things. Yeah. Okay. Very well said. We'll go on another quote, and I just uh, discovered this yeah. this uh, this morning. Actually, it's from uh, Brianna Weist. I hope I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. And she's got a, a book that I'm going to get for sure. It's called I Am the Hero of My Own Life. What's your thought on that? If, if someone, they have to take that position in their life, that they're the hero of their own life. You know, I absolutely get that. So I, okay. I have two sons. Um, you know, one one's a captain in the Army and the other's a Thank you. sophomore in, in college. And, you know, my answer to both of them is it's your life. You get to live it. Make it yours. If you're not satisfied with something, you have only yourself to look at. 
Oh, that just puts a tremendous amount of accountability. But it's actually liberating, too. Uh, but it is. So so yeah. be your own hero. I mean, that, celebrate yourself. I will tell you, I periods have struggled with that because I'm highly critical of myself. I'm more critical of myself than anybody is around me internally. You don't see so it. So if, if we heard what you said about what you did or didn't do? Would it, be, if you crawl to my head and go, oh, my God, what's, what's wrong with this guy? That's... <laughs> that's what I, I think okay. most people have that issue. But is is my wife and other people tell me you have to learn to celebrate things in a moment. I'm a typical, you know, wife says you just closed a major deal and then it grains like now, oh, yeah. But uh, I gotta make sure the next one is it's it's like done. Yeah, transition <laughs> to the next one. Stop for a minute. You have done great and tremendous things, and and you need to acknowledge that for yourself without wallowing in it. Now they say the same thing about problems. Okay, something went bad. Do the AAR, you know, figure out what you did, acknowledge it, move on. Don't look behind you, look forward. Now, how uh, are you sharing not just the uh, perspective and ultimate solutions to the problems that you're addressing, but do you also share with them that human insight and experience that you just shared with our audience? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think What's their take on it? Just see if you can generalize. What's their take on it? Yeah, just if, yeah, generalize it. I, I think it's a learning process. I'll, I'll you know, it. it's uh, I probably did the same thing to my father. Um, it, it's yeah, but I'm doing this today. <laughs> yes, you're not original. <laughs> you're not it, original. It, 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 I think that's a, a sense of maturation. It, it takes repetitions through uh, successes and failures to become comfortable with your ability to overcome things. In, in other words, to build up your resilience to the things that fail in your life so that that you actually can focus on learning and growing and, and you know, being a better person or being better yeah. at what you expect of yourself. Yeah. There's another quote. Boy, this was a loaded morning, especially uh, following up on getting ready, prepared for our interview. Is It's, uh, of all people, Dwayne The Rock Johnson says, uh, bravery is the solution to regret. Curious as to your take on that. Bravery is the solution to regret. Now, if you don't want to regret something, be brave. Yeah, I learned how yeah. to snowboard at the age of 56. That's what I did over Christmas. Oh, really? Okay. And, and how, how was that? I, Were you afraid not, of it before? Or I, you just, I just never got around well, yeah, to it? I mean, it's intimidating. I'm 56 years old and my body breaks. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's one of those, and people say it's hard. I say, oh, no, yeah, seven days to take it. I think that's the, like, they call it one of those personal challenges of, you want to do this and you want to do something, don't regret that you didn't try it. Did you, uh-huh. you didn't, yeah. the success and failure is in your own mind. It doesn't, I love that success I, I and failure is in your be, own mind. You know, I don't have to be Lindsey Vaughn. <laughs> I just got to get down the slope without breaking my neck <laughs> was, and I'm good. Yeah. And I, I think how'd you do? How'd you do? Yeah. No, I did great. In fact, yeah. I'm going to Tahoe next week to do it again. To do it, to again. Do it again. So yes. that's how well so, you did. So I did it once. And I, yeah. I got this down pat. I actually, you know, by the time I, my youngest son and I were both on the mountain together, and, and he's phenomenal. It's like duck. We, we don't take cold weather vacations. So the first time he's taking a vacation in the snow, and he says, you know, this is the best vacation I've ever had. And he's on the, you know, the blue run snowboarding <laughs> down, down below and past me, but... You, you, unless you try, and unless you're willing to fall down and get up a hundred times, the successes really aren't worth it. I mean, mm-hmm. it's really those challenging ones that that make so much sense to you. Yeah. So, that, so obviously that that resonates with you. 
attacking for defense, other you know, where do you see it in the next couple of years? Or no, you take it, you take it uh, as it is. You know, what we're doing right now is what we're doing on. We're not looking at what we're going to do in a year from now, two years from now. Is there a plan that way? Am I off base? No, actually, you know, I'll start at the base of the Congress. It actually funded uh, Hacking for Defense to expand in the United States to give, you know, about $15 million to uh, one of our government sponsors and said, that's really good stuff. Keep doing it. We clearly see Hacking for Local or whatever it becomes as being a mirror image of the potential of generating what we call these mission-driven entrepreneurs for the country. I think eventually the two become a project, each its own project, underneath a program or something that looks like mission-driven entrepreneurship. And that's what we eventually start to sell. Our job is to deliver mission-driven entrepreneurs back to the country. Superb. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Do you want to improve the quality of your kids' education? Would you like to see more hands-on learning, real-world connections, and experiences that help kids build critical 21st century skills? RAFT, R-A-F-T, the resource area for teachers, supports teachers with affordable tools and training that can have a direct impact in the classroom. Donations are always welcome. To learn more, visit raft.net. We're talking today with retired Colonel Pete Newell, CEO of BMNT and Board of Director for Hacking for Defense Incorporated, H4DI. Feel free to visit them at www.hrdi.org. That's www.hrdi.org. Pete, share with us, especially with the, the housing situation here in the Bay Area, let's just say the, the, the country, how that problem was presented to you or you approached the problem of you know, housing shortage, affordability, expansion, retrofit. How, how did that come about? You, you know, I'm, a, I'm actually a victim of it, so I, I can't afford to buy a house here. <laughs> you know, I have one in Austin, Texas. I, you know, it, it's, Welcome. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I rent a house and only can afford to become a retired colonel who owns a business and has a wife who works at Stanford. Right? There's a lot of work going yeah. on. Um, I'm really curious to see what comes out of the UC Berkeley Hacking for Local class because they, there were probably three different housing problems submitted. And most of them were wrapped around the idea of um, uh, equitable. How do you create equitable housing in an area so that, that people aren't crowded out? I mean, that Palo Alto is one of the I mean, Stanford's biggest problem is the people who work at Stanford can't afford to live here. By and large. I mean, if my wife were were simply the job that she does at Stanford, weren't married to me and didn't have a second income, she'd be commuting for hours away to get here. That's a significant... When you're trying to recruit people to come do a job, it's hard. And I think, you know, the tech companies have the problem. The services industry has that problem. And it just, it exacerbates the transportation problem because now you got to be all these people on the road, they're overcrowding the trains and it, it's just kind of a snowball effect. Yeah. So did you seek it out, that, that sort of problem? Was it just to, uh, on your own to say, you know, how would we solve this? You know, 
I, I don't think that we... Or how can we? Or how can we can... sought it out, Ethan? When, when we teamed with Schmidt Futures, there were some things that they were specifically interested in. Housing was one of them. Social justice is another. And I think services in transportation. But the, the cities, it, it, it takes about a nanosecond for a city to come up with a homelessness, equitable housing, equitable use of you know, same thing, sports fields. How do we prevent, you know, all these ball teams and organized sports from consuming all of our athletic fields across the city to the point where a kid who just wants to have a pickup game with his friends has no place to go anymore? I mean, that's, that's a, I was surprised when I read that one. I said, you know, I, I get that. So you uh, come to this equitable use of services and access to things, well, it becomes an issue that spreads all over the place. Yeah, how, can you share with us how, you know, maybe a first phase of addressing, like, here's a pers- perspective solution or several solutions to this problem? I can't get there yet. So, you okay. know, we're really three weeks into that course. So, oh boy, we're really we're ahead, moving ahead. <laughs> first, pushing them to ensure that the way the problem was articulated is correct. So, the whole uh-huh. process, the discovery, before we start talking solutions, make sure you got the right problem. So that process of discovery. So you're still, is there a timeline of it or do you not put the timeline? You know, we usually in the first four to six weeks of the course, there's a lot of work done. Problem validation is what you achieve when you get that right. Is is something that comes apart as, as part of solution development. In other words, it's not until you try and hand somebody a solution to something that you ever get an honest feedback on what the problem really was. So a little cart before the horse thing. Mm. You have to start developing MVPs of solution to get people to give you feedback. And that feedback will help you understand that, that you're working on the right problem or not. And once you think you got the right problem, and then the feedback is much more focused on the solution. But it doesn't happen. It's not a cut line between the okay. two. They really kind of overlap. So there is a really excitement when you actually identify that here's the problem. Like we got the problem. We really, we, we're at the center. You know, that, that excitement is usually preceded by abject, um, <laughs> dismal really? feeling of oh, no. we can't figure out the right problem. And so the first wow. pivot, the first pivot one of these teams will go through is when they go back to the problem with sponsor and they tell them you've got the problem wrong. We need to rewrite this problem. First pivot is always the problem. And I, I would tell you out of over, well, over 300 problems we've pushed through the Hacking for Defense course and probably more than 400 others that BMT has touched with the enterprise clients, less than five problems have come to us and survived in the original form. Less than five? Less than five. And we actually celebrate. We said, oh, my God, we got a problem that came on with it. It was correct all the way through. Like, wow. That's phenomenal. The, simply getting the problem right, that first pivot of acknowledgement that, that it was wrong is that celebration. Because now it's like, okay, we can really get started. And then it's a series of pivots over the, to get solution right. We have a pathway to deliver that solution. Wow. That's like next level human stuff. It, it is fascinating to watch it happen. Yeah, especially it must be from the beginning, from when it comes through the door to when it's... <laughs> yeah, but I can tell you, you know, we're, we're now recruiting for the Stanford Hacking for Defense class that we teach in April. And we've got 20 plus problems out there. And I personally clear the problems to go to the course. And they all look personal and reasonable to me. <laughs> but I guarantee you three weeks of the course, I'll be looking at it going, uh-uh. Based on the analysis of the data that I'm seeing and based on what you guys are telling me, that's not right. 
to let the team discover that. Sure. But, but it's going to shift. It absolutely will shift. And so you already mentally and emotionally prepare for that shift. I am. <laughs> okay, they aren't. The, the team may not be. We, despite the fact that I tell them <laughs> yeah. that, that it's always difficult for the team. It's, it's tough the first time out. Yeah, I would think, how would the, how is your team? I mean, this got to be gut-wrenching at times. For some, it is a massively emotional event. I mean, you know, entrepreneurship is hard. And, you know, students are taking this class for a grade. And they're in a group and they're working as a team. And, you know, all those hard things. That It's, it's just real-life experience. This is you can wrestle your way through something and gain the confidence of, yes, I know I was utterly dejected and lost and confused, but I eventually worked it out. I kept applying the methodology. I kept reaching out. I kept interviewing. I kept developing a thesis and MVP and kept going through my analysis, and I was getting great feedback. I got through it, and now I know how this works. Okay. It, 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 we're gonna go back to where you, you have on the back of your, if, I'm, if I can recall correctly, in the back of one of your whiteboards is you have, you know, some of the most <laughs> challenging uh, experiences. And one of them was the battle actually being in war. Yeah, that was a 10 of 10. Okay. And then the entrepreneurship. Nine of 10. That's okay. That's unreal to, to say that warfare may be a little behind. Entrepreneurship has so many of the gut wrenching life or death elements to it. Yep. It does. So, so particularly, I think you can tell from a warfare standpoint, as as a battalion commander with 700 lives entrusted to you, actually in combat, knowing that you're committing people who most likely will, will get killed in the process of doing something you ask them to, oh. it's not just the personal, I may get shot and killed and leave my family behind, but I know I'm committing somebody else who's got the same issue and they're doing it because I asked them to. That That's high stress constant. Entrepreneurism, starting a company essentially means you're signing your family up and their livelihood, their school, the whatever, to fall in that tribe. And I, you know, I'll give you an example. When I, when I retired and my wife and I moved out here, my youngest son was starting high school. And, you know, I, I didn't have a job. I didn't have a company. I didn't have a place to live. I had nothing other than this concept of starting a company. And I remember when we came out to look at a house, we were – sitting in the Stanford Stadium down the road and was on a track meet or something. And I was getting to that letdown is, A, I can't imagine the cost of living out here and how we're going to be able to afford to pay rent for, you know, at these exorbitant rates. And I got to start a company. I don't know if we'll make any money. I said, I don't know how we're going to do this. And, uh, you know, we got through it. To much of my wife's credit, she finally said, she goes, what do we need? And we finally boiled it down and said, we wanted to put Tanner, my youngest son, into a high school, a good high school for four years. And in order to do that, we were willing, if we had to, to move into a two-bedroom apartment to ensure that he was in a decent high school for however long it take. I couldn't have money to do that. Now, that gave me the freedom to accept the risks necessary to start a business and go without pay for a year. Without pay for one year? I, I went without pay for a year to build a business. Oh, yeah. Most human beings will not do that. That's not well, something most people are Entrepreneurs are crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that is not... Do you have to be willing to make those sacrifices, but you have to understand what the cost is to the people around you. That's why I say 9 of 10. 9 of 10. Because in days, I didn't know we were going to make it. Colonel Pete Newell, thank you so much for being on the show. Is there anything else that you'd like to share that we may not have touched on in our uh, 
or our show and our hundredth. You're the hundredth. Honestly, we need to celebrate that hundredth thing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you're living up to what you shared. That's a big about. deal. Yeah, hundred is a big deal. I'm, I'm proud of all our crew here. Definitely, it's uh, it's uh, been uh, been a challenge, blood, sweat, and tears many times over. But we're at a hundred, and let's look forward to another hundred plus. Now, say, let's do it again. Excellent. I'll come back from the two hundredth. Oh, <laughs> there you go. We, you heard it. You heard it here, folks. As I said. It's been a real honor having you. Thank you very much. And hope you do come back soon. No, thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been retired Colonel Pete Newell, CEO of BMNT and Board of Director for Hacking for Defense Incorporated, H4DI. Hacking for Defense is a 501c3 nonprofit organization established to enable powerful approaches to stimulating science and technology, invention, disruptive innovation, and entrepreneurship on university and college campuses. H4DI solves real problems right now and tackles complex problems critical to national security and invents new technologies with a team of engineers, scientists, MBAs, and policy experts. For more information, feel free to visit www.hrdi.org. That's hrdi.org. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Stanford, California, and on location in California, and is a production of KZSU Radio. Today, the recording engineer is Charlotte M. Thornton, Chief Engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Akshay Yagi. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews with an S at kzsu.stanford.edu. Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of over 240,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of production and broadcasting costs for The Modern Architect.